we'll be turning to the book of Luke. We'll be turning to the book of Luke and we'll be in Luke 1 today as we take a break from our series in the book of Hosea. Luke 1 as we look to discover the message of Jesus and him coming to earth. And it's a wonderful message for us. This morning I got a great text from a mentor of mine and a good friend of mine back in western Kentucky. And he said, hey brother, I'm praying for you. Tell him about Jesus. And the way this guy would say it, because he's from western Kentucky and has a thick southern accent, he said, tell him about Jesus. And he'd say something like that. And that's especially what we're going to do today, is we're going to learn about the great news of Jesus today. So our eyes are going to turn to Luke 1, 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. And I'll begin by reading for us, and then we'll pray, and then we'll learn about Jesus. Luke 1, 26 begins this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to the word And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, nothing is impossible for you. That's the message so clear in this scripture that is just ringing out from unexpected, unusual circumstances, unimpressive people that you're using, and you say, I'm going to display my glory, my power, and my ability over it all. Nothing is impossible for you. And Lord, nothing is impossible for you. And so I ask that you would do mighty things through this time. You might convict our hearts, convict the hearts of unbelievers, that they might know you and believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, nothing is impossible for you. Might you convict us of our sins that we might repent and run to you. Lord, nothing is impossible for you. Might you do a mighty work through this church that is seemingly unimpressive to the world. Might you do a mighty work through this place to rescue people from Flat Rock Ridge and Polo Fields and neighboring places around us, Lord. Might you do a mighty work in this country because nothing is impossible for you. Lord, we look to that work and we look to your text for guidance in it. Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
nothing will be impossible for you. An amazing text and an amazing verse right there, the idea that there is nothing impossible for Christians, especially in that last verse right there, for nothing is impossible with God. And that's the idea right there that this text is wanting to scream to us, not so much the idea that we can do anything, but the idea that with God, he can do all things and we can do all things with God. Now this is a idea that is oftentimes forgotten or potentially rejected in our day. Maybe it's forgotten because an amnesia towards the truth. Maybe we don't remember exactly what the scriptures are teaching about God and maybe we don't understand quite what it's saying about God. Or maybe it's because of a self-reliance that we have. I know most of the time that I have great self-reliance on my own abilities, on my own thoughts that I can do many things. And what this text does is it humbles us and says, no, we can't do all things. Nothing is impossible with God. Whatever the reason might be, what this text wants to do and what the whole Bible wants to perpetually proclaim is God can do anything. And I mean that. God can do anything. And I think the question comes to us at the end of the day is, do we believe it? Do we respond to it? I think Mary believed it right here at the end in verse 38 when she says, Behold, I am your servant. Do we respond in the same way? Do we believe that truth? Because the scriptures want to consistently proclaim, I can do anything. I can do anything because I am God, all-powerful over all things. But how is it that God is going to work all things? And how is it that we get to that place right there at the end of it where Mary says, I am your servant, Lord. I believe it. I trust it. How do we get there? What we have to do is we have to kind of take a journey through the scriptures and kind of see how the Lord really begins to work and in what ways the Lord begins to work. But first what we need to see right here at the beginning in verses 26 through 29 is the idea that the Lord uses sometimes, the Lord uses sometimes, and I would actually say maybe most of the time, he uses unexpected ways to bring about his unimaginable ends. The Lord might use unexpected ways and unexpected people to bring about his unimaginable ends. Look right here in verse 26, who it starts off with. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth isn't a place that necessarily rings in our ears because we don't live around Nazareth. We don't hear much about Nazareth. And unless we really concern ourselves with the Bible, we'll never really know anything about Nazareth. But Nazareth was a place in Galilee. And Galilee was a country that was outside of Judah and it was outside of Samaria and it was outside of Jerusalem. Therefore, it was unclean. It was a place where sinners lived. It's a place where foreigners and pagans were. It was a place that was looked down upon by anyone who was a Jew or who was an Israelite who was a part of the covenant with God. And you'll hear this idea about Nazareth being looked down upon and frowned upon throughout the scriptures. Maybe you'll hear it in John 1 in the words of Nathaniel when he's talking in Philip and he says those famous words, what good could come out of Nazareth? And the idea right there is everything in Nazareth is disgusting. There's nothing good that can come out of there. Or maybe it's in John 7 when Nicodemus, a Jew, a Pharisee, is talking to other Pharisees and they say, look through the scriptures. Does anything come out of Galilee? Galilee, Nazareth frowned upon. It's kind of like 
the same way that sports rivals will talk to one another. We have some U of L and UK fans um, in this room right now. And I imagine if I go over to Steve Ams and I ask him about UK football right now, he's not going to speak about them in sparkling terms, right? Um, he's, he's not going to be excited about that. And if I go over to Landry over here, who's a UK, who's actually UK fan, so it doesn't work, he's not going to speak well of U of L either. But I got some U of L fans back there, uh, the Jones brothers, and they're not going to speak well of UK, right? And so there was this antagonism towards one another, very much the same idea. Why is it the Lord is going to use Nazareth? Ugh, gross, scum between my toes. Is It's because the Lord begins in unimpressive places. The Lord begins in places that you're not going to expect him to begin working. He's doing it in a much unimaginable way to bring about his most amazing of outcomes. And look at the people that he begins to work with. You're expecting him to take a, a hero, maybe. You're expecting him to take someone who's going to be brave. Instead, he takes Mary, who, Mary, it's not a bad thing that she's a virgin, but she's a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But how does she respond? She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And what we see out of Mary is not necessarily, like I said, not so much of a bad thing that she's a virgin or that she's troubled, but she's fearful. But she's someone who you're not expectantly thinking of. It's not someone you're thinking, this person is going to rescue the world or the Lord is going to use this lady to be the catalyst for my people. Because in the New Testament, we have this idea that the Lord is going to come down and ransom his people to himself. But who's he gonna do it through? We would expect someone maybe like David who is a mighty king. Maybe we would expect someone like a hero in the Old Testament, like Moses, who led his people. But instead, he's coming to someone who's not so much of a bad figure, but someone who's unpressive and someone who's unlikely. And what this points us to is it points us to the Bible's idea of how God works and how God chooses to display his power. And God chooses to display his power oftentimes with what we've been seeing right here, unimpressive places, and unlikely people. The Lord does this throughout all the scriptures, and there's many scriptures that identify this. I think of a text like Psalm 8, verse 2, when it says, out of the mouths of babes and infants, God has established strength against his foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. How is it the, Lord that stop, how is it the way that the Lord God stops the enemy and the avenger, Satan from working? Babes unusual clients that God is going to use to stop people from uh, winning the battle. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven, God chose what is foolish and what is weak to shame the wise and the strong in the world. God chooses the things that aren't exactly admirable, things that we're not going to see and say, oh yes, that's exactly what it is. No, God chooses things that you're not necessarily going to look up to and this is how he consistently works. And it's right how he consistently works in the scriptures. And what I want to say is, it's how he works today. It's how he works in our world today. He works through my classroom, not so much of me teaching the Bible to my students and proclaiming the gospel so that they all get saved. No, but he does it through a student who comes in and who just came to know Christ maybe the week before and says, I have this wonderful news and I don't know much about the gospel, but I'm going to share with my classmates. I don't know as much as you, Mr. Rosen, someone might say, or maybe someone say, I don't know as much as you, Brother Robert, but I know this truth. I know this truth of the gospel, this truth that Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died for sinners and that I'm going to go proclaim it. 
God uses unimpressive people to bring about his unimaginable ends. Or maybe God works in this way, where he takes a kid, someone who's young and just learning about Jesus, and they want to know more about Jesus, and they go to their parents and they say, Mommy, Daddy, I want to know more about who this Jesus guy is. Can we go to church? Can we go learn more about him? God speaks through the mouths of babes. Or maybe really closely right now to our circumstances in the state of Kentucky. God may be working through a tornado accident, a terrible event that happened over in western Kentucky to bring about what? Five people this past week proclaimed the name of the Lord and were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ through those times. The Lord works through some of the most unusual, unimaginable circumstances for what? For his amazing glory to be proclaimed. And what we need to see in this scriptures is this right here, this setting, yes, it's meek, it's mild, it's humble, but it's the setting that the Lord uses. And this is really important for us to understand, especially in this church right here. While, and I don't want to speak disparagingly about long run, but to the world, to society, to the communities around us, most other large, massive churches in the area, we're not that impressive. We don't have that much going on. We're not, I have all the glow and all the lights, even though we got real lights over there, but you guys kind of know what I mean, right? We don't have all the fireworks. We don't have any smoke screen going on around here, right? To the world, maybe not that impressive. But for us, this is how the Lord begins to work. And what I want to do is just even with this time, and I'm going to say, this isn't so much attached to the meaning of this text right here, but just in the way that the Lord works, plead with you guys Get involved in this thing that the Lord is going to do in long run. Because what the Lord is not looking for, it's not looking for a fabulous people. It's not looking for an amazing start. Now the Lord is looking for humble beginnings and he's looking for right over here what the Lord says to her. I've found favor in you, Mary. The Lord's just looking for little faithfulness in us. And the Lord is looking to use us for great things. I pray all the time and I ask that you would pray for great things for this church. That this church would reach out to the communities just like I prayed a second ago. To Flat Rock Ridge, to Polo Fields, to all the places around us. That the Lord would use this unimpressive work right here to make much of himself and to bring people to know him. That he might do an amazing work. But how is it that the Lord does this? How is it that the Lord begins to come to Mary and to come to her in her meekness and her mildness and her humility. Well, it's actually, I think, very much the same way that the Lord might come to us in this time. The Lord might come to long run in our meekness and our mildness and hopefully our humility at the same time. Look at me and look with me at verses 30 in chapter one when it says, and the angel said to her, and the woman right here, Mary, she's shaking, she's, I imagine just freaking out, oh no, this is an angel, like we all would be, we'd all be freaking out right here. I mean, this is an angel before and she's terrified, and he gives some of these most amazing words of comfort to her. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And you could imagine just the stillness that would come over her. She's nervous, she's scared, she has no idea what's gonna happen with the angel of the Lord appearing to her, and she hears, yes, there's favor here. That the Lord has come down to me, that the Lord has condescended to me, and he says, you are part of my people. I have shown you grace, Mary, and you are with me, and I am not against you. And for those of you who have been in our Roman study, you'll know what this means, this idea of favor from the Lord. It's an amazing truth. We see in Romans 8, verses 31, when it says, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not bring us all things? 
Can anyone bring a charge against God, elect? No, it is God who justifies. What the Lord is doing right here is he's trying to show her, Mary, we need to calm down for a moment because what's most important and what's most significant in long run for a work of the Lord to be done here, we need to hear this right here, you need to know me. Most significant, most substantial right here for Mary to be calmed and to begin to see a work of the Lord done, Mary needs to know God, needs to have favor with God. Because what will begin to happen is if we know God through a saving relationship, through the form of Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about in a second, that good news of Christ Jesus, it will empower everything. It will change our lives. It will transform this church. It will transform this community. It will transform the world. But what we need to understand right here is the building block is favor with God. It's knowing Jesus Christ. And it transforms, changes, and motivates, empowers everything in your life. And notice what he doesn't say right here. This is important to hear what the angel of the Lord doesn't say to Mary. He doesn't come up to Mary and say, Mary, it's okay. You're a really good person and you're really faithful to me, right? It's not what he does. No, instead what he does is he gives her this truth that the Lord has given you favor in your life. And this is, of course, very important for our lives that we don't look internally at our good deeds, at our thoughts, or what we've done for the Lord, but rather we see how the Lord sees us. We recognize what the Lord declares of us. This past week, I was at a wedding, and it was a wonderful wedding. It was a Christian wedding. It was a beautiful time. And at the end, one of the pastors, he was talking about their relationship between the now husband and wife and how it was going to be so strong. And what I want to say before I kind of tell you what he said, I want to say this wasn't a bad thing necessarily what he said. It just wasn't necessarily the best thing. There could have been something much better, I think, what he said. But he was talking about them, and he was saying this at the end of their wedding and at the end of the marriage, and he was saying, you know, in this marriage, there's going to become trials and difficulties and tough times and hardships. And I pray that when those times come and when those seasons come around, you remember this moment right here of how much you loved one another. Now, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I'm, I'm sure that gets said a lot. I think that's a great idea that's thrown around that you should remember how you loved one another so much. It's just not the best thing. It's not. The best thing to remember in that marriage, the best thing to remember in the Christian life, the best thing that's going to empower you is the grace of Jesus Christ. I wish what could have been said right there is what you need to remember when trials and difficulties come is not your love for one another but how Christ has loved you, how Christ has laid down his life for you, how Christ has exchanged your punishment to be laid upon him. And when you look to that truth of Christ, it empowers you, enables you to love one another. Just give a quick shout out to Ashley. The greatest thing about Ashley, and there's a lot of great things, Ashley is beautiful, lovely, smart, articulate. She handles all the screens. She does basically all the background work for this church. Um, Amen to that. But the greatest thing about Ashley in our marriage is that she has this part right. She knows Jesus. If she didn't, she wouldn't love me anymore. What holds that marriage together, hopefully at the end of the day, is going to be Jesus. But what holds people together right here is going to be Jesus at the end of the day. This is the stone that everything begins to turn on. This is the hinge upon which it all swings This right here is what we need to get. But if we miss this idea right here of knowing Jesus as a starting point, none of it matters. We'll miss it all. 
And the message of how we get to know Jesus is through what comes later in this gospel. That Jesus Christ is going to be born of the Virgin Mary, as we'll see here in a second, born sinless, perfect, and fully, even in his sinless perfection, obeys the commands of God like none of us can, but then goes to the cross, not for his own sake, but for yours and my sake, to redeem us to the Lord, to buy us back to him, to pay our guilty pardon for all the sins that we committed, that we might be with him. That's where it starts. But where does it continue? Well, the Lord doesn't just start, stop right there with his nature and who he is, but the Lord continues to tell him about what he's going to do. And this is an awesome message of what he's going to do because the Lord is going to reign over all the earth. Verse 31, he continues on, he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I love that right there, but we're going to focus on that idea in a little bit because it's going to be broken down, the virgin birth. But then he says, this is what the son's going to do. This is what Jesus is going to do right here. Verse 32, he will be great, and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now just to point out the significance of what's going on right there in verses 32 through 33 is there's great fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of what the Messiah was going to do when he came to earth. Back in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised to King David, I'm going to give you a son who's going to come after your line and he's going to set up a throne and a kingdom and rule over all the earth. And his dominion will never be destroyed. Now, most of the Jews saw that and they saw a, they saw a material might. They saw a, um, a military might, a, a powerful army coming to be. They saw strong castles and walls and kings and things such as that. They didn't quite get what was going on here of a virgin conceiving a child coming humbly to them and who was going to die on a cross. But nevertheless, this is how God brings his kingdom. God doesn't bring his kingdom with a sword. He doesn't bring it with a spear. No, he brings it through the message of the cross. He brings it through the message of Jesus coming to the world humbly, dying on the cross for our sins, and giving us rule and reign over this earth. And this is so important to know right here, because even in the midst of our circumstances, where it looks like Christianity has no hope in the world, where it looks like a Christian government is being torn down and definitely not being raised up, and it looks like laws of God are being abandoned and people are abandoning morality, this is so important to get. Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. Whatever is happening on in our government, whatever is happening in our society, whatever is happening in the workplace, Jesus reigns reigns over it all. And we understand that his laws, his ways, his kingdom, it will not be thwarted, but it will stand forever, just as this text says. It's a common question that I get from my students on that very topic that we were just talking about is, what's the state of Christianity in the world today, or mainly they're just concerned about the United States? Because what my students often see is they often see Christianity being torn down and despised because they often look at it through the lens of social media and they see it being maybe discriminated against or um, being made fun of or something such as that. And what I often want to say, I want to say, yes, Christianity, of course, is not liked in the world, but I also want to say it was never promised to be liked. 
It never was. Some of us have this vision of Christianity as this idea that we'll go out and we'll be liked by everyone. It's not true. Jesus said, if they hated me, what more will they think about you? And the idea is that you'll be hated. At the same time, of course, there's this also this idea that we're supposed to be loving and kind and supposed to be lights to the world, a city shining on a hill, so people will see that as well. So there's some both and there, but that's not the answer to it. That's not the answer that I give them. I say, yes, is Christian maybe morality being torn down? Is it being abandoned in our society? Is there an intolerance of Christian values and Christian morality in the workplace? Of course. I was just talking to a college professor this past week, and I asked him, I said, if you were in your classroom, and he's a Christian, if you were in your classroom, could you state the Christian core convictions in your classroom? He said, no, I'd be fired. Of course, when we observe those things, it looks like Christianity is deteriorating. But that's not Christian conquering. Christian conquering is going out with this message right here of the kingdom and proclaiming the message of Jesus. Christian victory doesn't look like us being liked. It doesn't look like us having a foothold in the society. It looks like people coming to know Jesus and coming to know this kingdom right here through the virgin who's going to be conceived in this time. That's how it comes. Jesus Christ, in the great hope that we all have, said to Peter, he said, this is the rock that I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the great message is, no matter what comes, no matter how much you are discriminated against, unliked in the popular world, my kingdom will never end. It will continue to grow because it's not a message of might and power. No, it's a message of salvation through crucifixion of Jesus. But the message is God reigns. God reigns. But how is it that he reigns? Verses 34 and 37 are going to explain that to us, that God reigns and how he reigns. And these are some of the most amazing verses in the Bible. It's one of the most amazing truths, even though it's maybe one of the most rejected and neglected in our days, and people will not even preach about this over um, Christmas season. I'll talk about that here in a second. But listen to how the Lord is going to reign. Verse 34, Mary hears this, and she's just heard she's going to conceive. And hopefully you've picked it up, but Mary's a virgin. And she recognizes the obvious. This isn't a dumb question. This is a very um, good question she has to ask. It's a good biological question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, we would have all been the same way. Lord, how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? This doesn't make sense. You know, she wasn't thinking in these terms, but she was thinking scientifically, that doesn't work. Biologically, this doesn't work. I don't know, Angel, if you've ever been around women, but this just isn't going to happen like this, right? And we should be thinking the same thing. How is this going to work? And what the Lord wants to answer right back is, yeah, it's not going to work out according to human means. It's not going to work out according to material ways. It's not going to work out in a way that the scientific method can study and understand. No, it's supernatural. What I want to contend right here and I want to proclaim so clearly is the Lord is a supernatural God. Supernatural not something for you just to reason with, not to rationalize, not to minimize and reduct. No, the Lord is outside of our understandings in many ways, and we'll talk about it in a second, but look at how he responds right here in verses 35. He says, and the angel answered her, oh woman, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we'll get into the rest of the response 
But this right here is revealing it. How is that this child is going to be born? It's going to be born through the conception of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, by the supernatural might of God over high who is reigning over all the earth, he is going to bring this about. And it's not to be materialized. It's not something to try and say, oh, well, you know, this is just kind of what they thought back in those days because, you know, these were ancient people and they didn't really know what was going on. But there's no way this miracle could have actually happened, right? That's what often gets talked about in our world today. And I guarantee we could go around churches in Louisville and we would actually hear people who would think that. People who would think, oh, yeah, virgin births don't happen, right? And what I want to say is classic unbelief. Classic unbelief. And why do they not believe? It's because they are materialistic. They only understand things through a materialist worldview, things that are physical, and they're reductionistic. Everything in their eyes can only be understood through science and through the world around them. And does this make sense of that? No, of course it doesn't make sense. It's outside, but it's a supernatural belief. And there's a lot of things that I like to say to that worldview, that kind of secular, humanistic worldview that reductionizes everything in physical material. But I'm not going to go turn into Mr. Rosa to the class right now. But what I'm going to say is what that fails to understand most crucially and most significantly right here is it fails to understand everything about Jesus. If we come to the Bible with that kind of worldview, we will miss Jesus every single day. The Bible consistently breaks that paradigm. The idea of Jesus coming into this world being God and man, born of a virgin, dying on the cross to exhaust the wrath of God upon himself, and then rising from the dead, it's all supernatural. And to understand the Bible and to dismiss supernaturalism, we will dismiss the Bible. We will dismiss Jesus and we will miss it all. What I want to understand, and if you have general questions, I genuinely want to answer. If you have genuine questions about science, naturalism, things like that, I would love to talk about those things. But I must contend with this. We will always miss Jesus. But let's get into what Jesus is and what this means about Jesus, the idea that he is born of a virgin. Two things I want to say that doesn't mean. Um, some people, the Catholic Church contends the idea that Jesus was born of what they'll say the Immaculate Conception, the idea that Mary was sinless, had never sinned. I just want to say I don't think that's found in the scriptures. I don't see a good place for that. So if you're, if you're thinking about that, come talk to me about it, but there's not a place for that in the Bible. And even if you look right here in verse 35, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born called Holy, the Son of God. Why is the child holy? Why is the child the Son of God? Has nothing to do with Mary never sinning. It's all because the power of the Holy Spirit. Second thing I want to say it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Jesus was perpetually a virgin. That's a doctrine that's taught by Catholicism as well, the idea that there is perpetual virginity in Mary. That's not true. There's nowhere to contend that in all of Scripture, but that's commonly upheld in the world today. But what does the virgin birth mean? What does it mean if it doesn't mean those things? One thing it first means. It means we have a new creation. A whole new creation. Because before what we had on this earth is we had humans who were created by God, but because creation and Adam and Eve and everything else after them had failed and disobeyed God and abandoned his ways, what we needed was a new creation. A new Adam to save. To, to save, to come into the world and to redeem us from our sins. Because what we understand is in creation, in all of us, we are fully human. None of us are divine. 
We are all sinful. We all have a sinful nature, and it corrupts every aspect of our being. There's many texts we could look at, but I just think about Genesis 6 and Genesis 8, when it says every intention of man's heart was desperately wicked. Every intention of man's heart, desperately wicked. So what is it that you need? We need a new Adam, a new creation to come into this life who is one, holy and perfectly God, and holy and perfectly man. Theologians and smart seminarians like me like to call this the hypostatic union. Big vocabulary word for you. Hypostatic union. That's the idea right there that Jesus comes in, not a man, but God-man, perfect, perfect. Why also does this matter? It matters because this is the only way we can be saved. And I want to just scream of this message. This is the only way we can be saved. I often talk about when I present the gospel, I talk about this thing called the active obedience of Jesus, the idea that Jesus comes into the world and lives a perfect life. The only way Jesus could actively obey is if it's initiated by the power of God. Human flesh could not do it. But by the power of God, by the power of this virgin birth, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, not because of Mary's power, he can live actively. But then here's what I love to think about too. Is because Jesus is the God-man, because Jesus is born of a virgin, born of the power of the Holy Spirit, he's eternal. Yes, he's mortal in his humanity, but he's eternal in his divinity. Therefore, when he goes to the cross, he must be divine. He must be. Why? Why must Jesus be divine when he goes to the cross? So that he can exhaust the full wrath and enmity and judgment of God upon himself. Jesus Christ, in order to save us from all our sins, must be God. Because understand this. One of our sins against God, it's not just deserving of a limited amount of wrath. It's not just deserving of a limited amount of death. No, it's deserving of an infinite amount of death and wrath. And for someone to take it all, he must be God and divine, limitless, eternal, immortal. And Jesus is that and exhausts the complete wrath of God upon himself for our sins. The reason we're saved is because of this message right here. Apart from the virgin birth, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Praise be to God that he sends himself into the form of humanity to save us. Yes, it is only right that man can die for sins, but it is only true that God can exhaust the punishment for sins. Therefore, it is necessary that the God-man must die. Understand that. And that's the hope we cling to. There is no other hope in life and death than that message right there. The God-man coming to save us from our sins. And how is Mary going to respond? Look down at verse 37. I love this. And verse 37, well, we'll see that. For nothing will be impossible with God. And that's an amazing idea right there. I've kind of skipped over it. But nothing will be impossible with God. The idea of nothing is impossible with God is because God will be able to forgive you of your sins by the power of himself. By the power of Jesus Christ and the incarnation and the virgin birth, God will be able to remove sins from you and redeem you to him. Sometimes, I hear this from my students and sometimes I hear it, I've actually heard it from uh, people in congregation and just from all around really. I feel as though I've sinned so much that I've sinned myself outside of God's grace 
There's no way that his grace could abound to me. There's no way his grace could reach to me because of what I've done. And what I want to say, brother and sister, we don't understand who Jesus is. Nothing is impossible with God and nothing is impossible for God to save because of who he is. Because of that message right here, the limitless God took all of what you deserve in a limitless amount and took it all on himself so that he might save you. Brothers and sisters, the hope and the message of nothing is impossible is the hope of the gospel. That it is not impossible for God to save any sinner. God might save all. And the question that comes to us right here at the end is, how will we respond? How will we respond? Whether you are a believer in here or an unbeliever, the response is actually quite the same. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to be me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What is it that Mary's saying right here at the end? I believe you, God. I believe everything you say. I believe that I have favor with you. I believe that you're going to bring a king to reign over this earth. And I believe that there's going to be a son who's going to come through me and is going to rescue the world. For the believer in here, continue to trust in that message. Believe in it today. And it will empower you and enable you. For the unbeliever in here, who is not called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to contend and I want to plead with you today. Believe in that message of Jesus. Jesus Christ, perfect humanity, perfect death, will redeem you to a perfect God where he no longer sees you for your sin. No, he sees you as Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's amazing. Let's pray. God, our Father, you are holy and above all creation. There is nothing that is outside of you. You are in all and through all, and all things are from you. Lord, I ask that you would work today in our hearts, draw on our loves and make them for you. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, just the same way with the same power that you gave conception of the Son, give life to us. Give life to us that we might love and enjoy you and follow you and know you. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this congregation, how much they do love you, and I ask that you would increase that. Increase it a hundredfold. Increase it for the rest of our days that we might grow in the depths and the riches and knowledge of God. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.